Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Please note that some listeners may find the content of this show upsetting. Due to the often sensitive nature of discussion, this show is not suitable for children. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. Today I'm talking to Marina Cantacazuna, award-winning journalist and founder of The Forgiveness Project a charity which collects and shares stories from individuals and communities who have rebuilt their lives following hurt and trauma. There is nothing more powerful than remorse and accountability and apology. I mean, that is the biggest key to recovery, I think. My name is Marina Cantacuzino, and I'm the founder of The Forgiveness Project. And The Forgiveness Project is a UK-based charity that works with restorative narratives, and that is stories about compassion, empathy, restorative justice and forgiveness, really to create a different kind of narrative because we live in a time when there's so much hate and division that there really seems a place to put out these different types of stories as a, as a counter-narrative, really, as an antidote to, to the division and the insularity that we see all around us. And the Forgiveness Project is UK-based, but obviously um, has an international reach. So mm. what what was it in your sort of background and your upbringing that led you to sort of end up founding such a sort of unique and amazing yeah. charity? Yeah, it is quite unique. And it's sometimes hard to explain as well. And it was never planned. You know, I think a lot of people, when they start charities, they sort of have an idea and they plan what to do next. But basically, I was a journalist. I was a journalist for many years. And in 2003, um, with the Iraq war, I decided, I went on the march, I was very disaffected, I was very angry actually about the whole thing. I thought, what can I do as a journalist? You know, I've got a small voice. The only thing I could think to do, I was doing quite a lot of travelling and working with Oxfam and the Red Cross at the time um, as a freelancer with a photographer. And I said to him, when we're travelling, let's try and find stories that are kind of countercultural in the sense that we can find victims who have suffered atrocity or terrorism and do not seek revenge, or perpetrators who use their aggression as a force to, for peace. I wanted to find examples, to showcase examples of peaceful solutions to conflict, because mm. I felt so strongly that the Iraq War was not the right thing to do, that it would only create 
more terrorism, more hate, more division. So during that year, I kept collecting the stories. I didn't know what would happen to them. I did the interviews and wrote them up as testimonies. Uh, my friend, the photographer, he took the portraits and we came towards the end of the year with 26 really strong narratives from South Africa, from Northern Ireland, from the UK, from America, from Israel, Palestine. And I wrote them up and we put them together as a kind of, to show people what can we do with this. I thought it'd be an article. If nothing else, this was going to be a strong sort of colour supplement piece. And Anita Roddick, um, I got had an introduction to her and I showed it. She's the founder, sadly since died, but she was the founder of the body shop and the social activist. And she was just so moved by the stories, which she saw as very sort of real, authentic and important. She said, you know, I'll fund this as a exhibition. This needs to be an exhibition. So basically, she gave us some money to make it into make the stories into an exhibition, what I never thought of. So that exhibition I called the F word because in that course of the year of collecting the stories, I come to understand that forgiveness was contentious and controversial and you either loved it or hated it. Um, people had different opinions about what it meant. So that exhibition, the F word, was launched in January 2004 at the Octo Gallery on the South Bank in London. And I thought my life would go back to journalism after that. It was just a project in a way that I'd done out of grew out of anger, as I said, but nothing in all my journalistic career. And I'd done some interesting stuff. I'd also done an exhibition two years before on mental health, similar, you know, testimonies with strong portraits. But nothing had ever sort of inspired this much interest. And people from all around the world were emailing and saying, you know, can we use these stories in our own conflict resolution work? Um, the media reach was vast, you know, I think at that time, and I figured this was quite, it was sort of belonged to Christianity in a way. And we were reframing it and, and making it into a secular concept. And we weren't saying, and I think this is absolutely critical, which makes it, you used the word unique earlier, I think it's a unique organisation. Because there are a few other organisations with forgiveness in their name, and they're all American. But they're all about pushing and proselytising and saying, if you don't forgive, you'll have failed or you'll suffer in some way. And we're literally... Well, while we are honouring and promoting all the benefits of forgiveness, we're also saying it's not always the right thing. There are times when it's actually harmful. And am I right in saying your organisation sort of provides that safe space for people to question as opposed to you guys trying to say that you have the answers? Definitely. To That's questions. absolutely critical to what we do. And this is why storytelling and narrative is so important, because mm. basically... We're not the experts. People who have experience are experts in their lives. And you can learn from that or not, but you can at least enter the journey with them. We're looking at recovery and mm. recovery and resilience and how people get there. And it can help. And, and going back to what I was saying about the exhibition, it was entirely because of responses like that. I mean, I remember one person who left a comment at the Oxford Gallery she said, now I've seen this exhibition, I wish I could be photographed next to my rapist. You know, and I was just sort of bowled over that kind of response. And the reason she left that is that she, this was clearly someone who was in a lot of pain and, and trauma and agony from what had happened to her. And while that actually at that point when those stories were right in the exhibition um, or with the Forgiveness Project, she had seen that restorative justice where... Victims and offenders come together to address the harm 
that has been caused mm. and to make some sort of reparation could be extremely healing. And why is it that people talk about, you often hear and I often hear people in prisons when they're doing programmes saying things like, I just felt a big weight lift. I felt the pain shift or there was something little thing that clicked inside. You know, it's interesting that people talk about this as a a physical reaction as well as an emotional, spiritual, everything else. I'm thinking particularly when a victim meets their offender, it's put so much to rest because that offender has become a monster. They have felt targeted. They have felt to blame themselves very often. And there is nothing more powerful than remorse and accountability and apology. I mean, that is the biggest key to recovery, I think. I mean, forgiveness may come at the end of that, or it may not. But to have someone in front of you, this is why restorative justice is so very difficult, because you have to sit in your shame, and you have to take the blame. And that is probably the hardest thing for any offender to do. It's much easier to think everyone else is to blame. But if you can do that, it's such a gift to the victim, because they will see you as human. They will be released from the fear and be able to move on in their lives. As you say, we have many stories from restorative justice, and all of them talk about a lightness that comes, a physical, you're absolutely right, a sort of Mm. physical response. And how would you actually describe what forgiveness is? Because it's a a sort of fairly big word that I imagine means so many different things to so many people, and it's contentious and sparks up so many different emotions. So how would you distill it down? Over the years, because... As a result of the exhibition, I started the Forgiveness Project four months later as a charity to use the stories in multiple ways. So over the years since then, it's 15 years later, I've thought a lot about this subject about forgiveness. I've even thought about changing the name of the Forgiveness Project at one point. To what? Well, exactly. (laughs) But I actually began to like the notion, the idea around the Forgiveness Project, because project means it's not quite finished, not quite, it's an ongoing ongoing process. And I like the conversation it starts. As I said, people love it or hate it. People feel inspired or affronted by it. People see it as strong or as weak. People see it as conditional or unconditional. Everyone has a view. Everyone has an experience. Everyone has their limits. We had Claire Short giving our second annual lecture. She talked about forgiveness and justice. And I remember at the time I got a letter from, and emails from a few people who work with forgiveness in America who were very clear, you must tell Claire Short that forgiveness is all about not letting others off the hook, but letting yourself off the hook. In other words, forgiveness is entirely an act of self-healing and it's got nothing to do with the other person. Well, that is a position, that is a belief from some, but it's not always right. I mean, there are some people for whom forgiveness is conditional on apology, that someone has to change in order to deserve forgiveness. And who's to say one is right or one is the other? So we create that space of debate, and it continues to be a very healthy, hearty debate. And it's quite interesting that people who are interested in forgiveness, which is psychologists and philosophers and people of religion, they do tend to take a position, one or the other. It it can be quite sort of unforgiving almost, the debate, because Mm. they're so certain that they're right. right. The older I get, the more comfortable I feel with saying, I don't know, or there is no right and wrong. I mean, I I do feel strongly about stuff, or I wouldn't have started this project, and I will call out injustice. But people have very strong-held beliefs about one thing. I'm very careful about telling them they're wrong. And I think within the prison work that we do, because out of the storytelling, the exhibitions, the website, 
the writing that we do in the books developed a prison program where we use the real stories people go in an ex-offender and a victim that's called restore isn't it Yes. How long has it been running it's for? It's called Restore, and that's been running since about 2008. Okay. And we piloted at High Down Prison in Sutton. Just for prisoners or staff as well? Now we do officers as well, okay. staff. Um, initially, it was just for prisoners, and we worked in the mail estate for a long time, not by design, but just that's how it mm. was. And can you explain a bit more about yeah. it? What, what sort of happens on an average day, or what does it look like? Essentially, it's a three-day intensive intervention co-facilitated by an ex-offender alongside a victim of crime thus modeling some kind of restorative process the offender will not be the offender in that victim of crimes incident but they and, and nevertheless it's a group, is it? it's a group how it's many roughly about 50, from 10 to 20 oh, so quite has big. been pretty big yeah we actually 20 is too many yeah and it's about really helping people turn their lives around you know through storytelling and you say that but it's a shift in a mindset I'd imagine sort of changing the way maybe they view their circumstances yes well one of our ex-offenders called Peter Wolf who's quite well known in the restorative justice field he always described it he came you know I approached him because I'd heard about him I read his story in the paper actually I thought he'd be brilliant to be one of our facilitators so he came and he said quite quickly after working with us you know that he'd never come across anything quite so powerful. And he talked about the 12-inch transition from head to heart. He said, what happens with the storytelling? Because on the first day, you will go in, and a victim of crime, survivor of crime, who comes in and shares a restorative narrative, and what I mean by restorative, and this is really important, it's, it's in some way resolved in their heart. They have reconciled with what's happened. They are able to show some degree of understanding, maybe compassion, maybe forgiveness even towards their the offender and they're able to show the journey of change and this is really important this story has a dramatic effect on offenders because they're not being bombarded by you did this to me people like you did this to me I'm really angry I'm not saying there's anything wrong with anger I'm just saying it's not helpful in a prison setting there used to be this thing in prisons I don't know if they do it anymore the scared straight approach which was the idea that a victim of some sort would go in and tell the offenders how much harm they did and the terrible consequences of the harm they did. Now, any psychologist will tell you that you'll just get resistance. So this is why the restorative narratives are so impactful. So the first day of this three-day course, that's what happens. And so you break down so much. We had a psychologist write a report once. He said, it's quite incredible. In your first morning, you achieve more than almost any other course I've seen in, you know, five days or six days, because that story breaks open something in prisoners to show their vulnerability and their humanity. Mm. And out of interest at that point, because I think there's always hesitation, people are worried that you're opening the can of worms and Pandora's box and, you know, they're all going to go mad. In your experience, what does that kind of unearthing of these sort of things look like in them? has to be very, very carefully facilitated. And that's a very good point you make. So the first thing is to talk to the prison before you even start. In fact, we're just about to start a course with people with personality disorders at Eastwood Park Women's Prison. So we're working very carefully with the staff there just to establish who comes on the course in the first place. Boundaries are very strict. We've, you know, all the normal things you would have a group. You only share 
what do you feel safe sharing? What I assumed first time I went into prison was that prisoners must talk to each other. They're banged up together, close quarters, weeks on, on end. They must talk. But actually, of course, there's no trust in prisons. They don't share anything of significance. So in these Greek processes, and you're talking about trauma, most of them themselves have been victims in their lives. So, you know, we do discuss forgiveness. As I said, we're not pushing forgiveness in any sense, but people are fascinated by the subject. It opens up a lot of stuff. It opens up pain that they've been through themselves. Um, so we also always have someone in the prison who can follow through. We come back. In, in Eastwood Park, the women's prisons we work, we go back four times. Right. I mean, this was like actually quite an interesting thing that I had never realised that how much we had to adapt the men's programme compared Absolutely. to the women's programme. How much more trust building it took with the women's prison than the men's prison. How much more creative poetry and art and drawing was needed with the women's prisons and the men's. So that was fascinating to me. And it's all about building self-responsibility, compassion, addressing inner motivation, and, you know, fostering skills, soft skills. Mm. things well, that, Sort of emotional intelligence, yeah, emotional I guess. intelligence, like self-awareness. And this is what you do through story. You see, yeah. everything that the Figureless Project does is about storytelling. Stories are so powerful. And they all share their story, or aspects of their story, I should say. This is where the safety comes in. We're very clear about what might not be helpful for them to share. Mm. But also, you know, live it, silence can be a very destructive thing. Um, so to help someone share their story safely and to feel supported. And actually, it's quite incredible the support the guys or the women give each other. You will have seen it yourself. Absolutely. Does it become apparent that people kind of suddenly it's a bit of a revelation that not only is it thinking about forgiving other people, it's actually about forgiving themselves? Because often that can be harder, can't it? Some people can't forgive themselves, but they can forgive the other people. I think it is harder because guilt wears heavily and shame. But I've also heard, I don't know if it's entirely true, but I've definitely heard you can't have compassion for others unless you have self-compassion. You can't forgive others unless you can forgive yourself. I mean, there's an element of truth there. Mm. Uh, I think definitely. And what if someone is going down the path of sort of wanting to forgive someone that has done something to them, say a woman has been raped, but they can't do it? Do you get people who start the process and then go, oh my God, this is just not what I thought it was. I'm not ready. Mm. What if you sort of have a wobble halfway through and then do you sort of beat yourself up because you're sort of trying to forgive someone and you can't? Yeah, you see, it can become a bit of a tyranny if you think you should. There's absolutely nothing wrong with not being able to forgive someone. You know, what is not forgiving? Is not forgiving hating and wanting vengeance? Not necessarily. Not forgiving might simply be you can't forgive. But actually, you might have a degree of compassion for that person. You might not hate. You might not think about it all the time. You might believe in justice that they should be locked away. <laughs> it sounds mm. crazy that I should say that, isn't it? But I do think, on the other hand, that being completely uh, consumed by hatred and bitterness is destructive, and there's a lot of mm. evidence to show that. So to move some way away from that towards forgiveness, you know, is absolutely yeah. fine. But I think people do put pressure on themselves because they feel that if they can't forgive, in some way they're a bad person. Yeah. Maybe someone's told them, you've got to forgive, because if you can't forgive, you'll be ill. People put a lot of pressure on themselves. People are put under a lot of pressure. So I'm very keen that people 
just do it in their own time, mm. you know. And I suppose it's not like an A to B in a straight line. It's probably A yeah. to B in the biggest wiggly That's line true. you could possibly in circles and zigzags. Yeah. And yeah. Colin Parrott's a good example. Uh, his, his son was killed in the Warrington bomb and he started the Warrington Peace Centre. And he spoke at one of our annual lectures once, alongside Claire Short, actually. He shared his story. And some people said, why have you got Colin Parry sharing his story? Because he hasn't forgiven the IRA. He's very clear. He says, um, no one ever came forward. You know, how am I going to forgive when I haven't had an apology? Or I don't know who it is. But everything about what he's done so far and about building bridges, talking to the IRA where he could, or former members of the IRA, starting the Warrington Peace Centre, working with extremism and violence to change it. Everything about him is about forgiveness, really, mm. in the biggest sense of that word. So I, that's why I don't think that actually arriving at this place of forgiveness, and you don't actually arrive there because the next day you might hate, mm. it, hate it again anyway. It's not a destination. It's not. No, it's definitely not. When people talk about grief, they talk about, is it the five stages of grief? I'm not, I can't quite remember. But they do. I know although... you also talk about certain stages in the forgiveness process that can be helpful as a framework to people. Again, like with the five stages that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross came up with, and then we're slightly discredited in that it isn't a linear thing and not everybody goes through all five and you can jump around. The same with forgiveness. Uh, having looked and analysed the many stories that we've collected over the years, there are some key um, requirements, if you like, if you're going to forgive, that what does it take? So the first thing I would say that not necessarily the first, but a really important aspect is wonder and curiosity. To move from why me to why them, or even why us, is absolutely critical. If you're someone who has everything figured out, you're quite a black and white thinker. This is the other thing, perspective. People who forgive have broad perspectives. That They see that good people do bad things, that bad things happen to good people, that life is morally complicated. They have empathy and to be able to put yourself in the shoes of others and to do more than sympathize to actually feel what it's like to be that person then that will lead to letting go of resentments and just being sort of released there's a lady on your website because there's so many fantastic stories on your website and one lady talks about a murderous rage that envelops her and at that moment she could have killed herself and become like the perpetrators of the violence but it was, actually it was part of the process. There are many different processes. And, and another thing I've noticed is that sometimes it's uh, an encounter, like a restorative justice encounter, or hearing something on the radio, or reading a story of someone who's so, whose life has been so destroyed by the hatred they felt because of what happened to them that they had become determined not to be like that. So sometimes it's a moment, other times it's a long, long process. And there is also such things, premature forgiveness sometimes, it's going back to what you were saying before, you know, sometimes people feel obliged to forgive. It may be a faith thing. Maybe they think they should because, you know, they've learnt that in the church. If you're a good Christian, you should forgive. So everybody's journey and process is different and you can also be triggered by stuff. You can think you've sorted it out. And then something can hit you and you can feel those feelings again. Equally, we had very sadly died a guy called Shad Ali, died last year, but he did a lot of our prison work. And he was a victim of a very violent uh, attack in Nottingham. And he'd had restorative justice eight years after the attack. He describes waking up in a hospital bed and nearly 
left for dead. You know, he had multiple operations the years later. But when he woke up in his hospital to bed many hours after the attack, he just knew the only way forward for him from that minute was to forgive the perpetrator. Wow. How, because it was, how could someone randomly attack? What is it about that person that they could just attack me like and do this to me? So that's quite, I think that's quite rare. But he was quite spiritual. I've been to India. You know, he had really worked on himself for many, many years. And I think it kicked in because round his bed was his wife and his friends who did, wanted nothing but revenge. And for a long time, that's very difficult for him. It's very isolating, actually, to talk about forgiveness, especially early on when something happens. People don't understand it. They don't mm. get it. Why? Why would you do It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Yeah. And so do you find most people sort of come to you later on when maybe they've had 10 years of kind of living with it, wrestling with it, being too angry, maybe their life being affected really badly by it? Is it usually a sort of bigger chunk of time and then people go, right, I need to try something else because I'm not willing to let my life kind of be like this? And it is a reason why we have too few younger people's stories on our website. Mm. Because I think that's also because people tend to be more black and white when they're younger. Do you think That's, also because they're more resilient and they kind of bounce back quicker? Well, I could, mean, maybe not, because obviously some of the things we're talking about, you don't bounce back from ever. You maybe just bury and ignore. Yes, it could be that. It could also be that the work that we do with young people in schools is slightly different to gathering their stories, going back to the safeguarding issue. Although people increasingly you know, very open on social media about their lives, aren't they? We're very, very careful about the stories that we share and how we share them. and But the work we do in schools tends to be we have a downloadable resource of films and teachers all over the world now are using these films to talk about restorative practices and, mm. you know, as ways of discussing compassion, empathy and forgiveness. And it's, again, it's going back to storytelling. There's nothing really more powerful yeah. than hearing someone's story. And what do you think society's view is on it? Because I think society expects revenge. Mm. And media, certainly, the media tend to whip up this kind of, you know, we need revenge, it's about payback. So how do you find the sort of battle between yeah. 
not the good and the bad, but the sort of forgiveness versus vengefulness. Mm. Because I feel certainly today we're living in a time, I think, that I've never seen so much hatred around, whether it's on social media, whether it's in your politics, whether, I mean, it's just everywhere. It's true. And you sort of feel you need a tidal wave of Mm. this sort of forgiveness and empathy and compassion to come up and sort of squash it all out. Yeah, like everything, it seems polarised because it's brought up both extremes. So I think social media and the internet have sort of turbocharged abuse and hatred and our politicians are allowing it to become normal and amplifying it. At the same time, there's a resistance to that and there's a big surge of people wanting to talk about restorative processes, really seeing the value of forgiveness. When I started in 2003, four on this subject, it was quite an unusual thing to be doing. Everyone who worked in forgiveness was probably Christian or really about spiritual and personal development. Less about what we're trying to do is about getting people to think and talk and, as I said, secularising it. Although many of the stories do come from a perspective of faith, it has to be said. I still think forgiveness is a bit of a dirty word. I still get very blank looks sometimes when I tell people what I do. You know, I was talking last week um, someone who worked in a Holocaust museum and I was introduced to her to someone who founded the Forgiveness Project. You know, and she really was quite didn't really want to talk to me. I could see it was a very difficult subject and you could understand why because, you know, how can you forgive the Holocaust? And, of course, maybe that's one of the things you don't forgive and that's all part of the discussion. Eva Cole has. She also says, I forgive not because they deserve it but because I deserve it. So she's very clear about that and this is about mm. her. She's mm. not telling anyone else they need to forgive but she's incredibly unpopular among some people, really, you know, for, for her stance. Yeah, it's threatening. It's very threatening. And people assume, I mean, going back to what you asked earlier, which I don't think I actually answered, what does it mean? People assume that forgiveness means condoning and excusing and letting someone off the hook. I don't see that as forgiveness, or if it is forgiveness, it's pseudo-forgiveness. As far as the definition goes, which is what you asked me about, mm. I've, I'm very, very loose with the definition because I don't think anything quite does it. No, and I, and for me, it seems like it's more about understanding and exploring yeah. and an education around. It's like with crime and my prison work, and I sort of say to people, of course, you know, okay, take, um, I always use the Bulger killers as an example because it was so big and everyone sort of knows about it and it was so extreme. But no one would ever condone what those boys did to Jamie Bulger, but we have to understand why they did it yeah. if we're ever going to move to a space where we can prevent it. Yeah, exactly. Because you can't prevent yeah. things if you yeah. don't understand yeah. where they come from. And some people see that understanding as one step too far. Yeah, and, they, and people can get very angry about that. I totally agree with you. And I think if, if I do have a definition now, it's something like, you know, making peace with things you cannot change. That's from a personal perspective, because some things we can never get the answers to. Mm. Sometimes people have hurt us are dead. Sometimes we might want them to say sorry and them to be remorseful and they're incapable of it for one reason or another. And sometimes things are passed down generations, you know, and sometimes forgiveness is actually the only thing you have to free you of the past. You know, because actually the past very often controls the present. There's another brilliant quote on your website, and someone says, the very thing I didn't want to do gave me my life back, which for me was really profound. Meaning forgiveness. Yeah. They didn't want to meet the person that had done whatever they'd done, and they decided to go and meet that person, and it gave that person their life Mm. back. That's fairly profound. Yeah, and I think where people have a big problem with forgiveness is where 
you know, in murder, child abuse, or, you know, in really heinous crimes that are hard to understand, actually, even hard to go to that place, and where a lot of people will refuse to. And the only way, you know, I can sort of rationalise that in a sense that why people can and how they can is that, again, they're not forgiving the act, but they're forgiving humanity itself for being frail and fallible for what Shakespeare calls ruined pieces of nature. The understanding comes in how are people born or how do they come to a place where they maybe wake up in the morning with a compulsion to do harm? How is that possible? That's where the compassion comes in because you think, what would it be like if I woke up in the morning and wanted to go and do something that is so despicable to me? But a lot of people cannot even begin to go there Mm. because that is the other, that is them, that is evil, that is monster. Mm. It's strange, isn't it? Because I think a lot about what would drive me to do something that might end up in me being in prison. And of course, my mind goes to my children. Mm. And if someone harmed them, I can very clearly see how I would spiral out of control and I would not be in control of my actions. But maybe that's because I've worked in prisons for so long that I spend a lot of time putting myself in other people's shoes and trying to understand. And I think maybe lots of people don't do that. I think so. In Rwanda, there was a thing called hate radio, which for a year told people that the Tutsis were vermin. For a year, gently, slowly, gradually, over the airwaves. No wonder that in the end people were convinced that their neighbours were out to kill their children, which is what they did, because that's what they were told. And therefore the slaughter began. So, yeah, to me, it's it's totally understandable. I mean, there's a wonderful Solzhenitsyn quote. Solzhenitsyn is the Russian author who was in concentration camps for many years. He said, if only there were good and evil people in a place where we could dump the evil people and forget about them. But unfortunately, the line dividing good and evil cuts through all our hearts. And who are we to destroy a piece of ourselves? In other words, we're all capable of good and we're all capable of evil. I, like you, believe that to be true and many don't. Mm. For a while I worked with lifers in prison, predominantly male, and when I was trying to explain to my friends, I was in my 20s at the time, my friends would sort of say, why are you, you know, hanging out with these murderers? I was like, well, first of all, I'm not hanging out with them. It's a job. And I said, it's fascinating because actually the men that I'm meeting are people who sort of found out their wife was having an affair, got into a fight with this bloke. The bloke ends up dying and they've ended up with a life sentence. Another man who I met who found his friend sexually abusing his daughter, he ended up with a life sentence. And once I'd gone through this list of actually the main reason why a lot of people end up in prison, they go, oh, well, that's completely understandable. Oh, well, that, and I'm like, oh, well, Yes, but that's why a lot of them are there. Of course, there's the exceptions to the rules and there's some people really need to be there if you're talking about the Harold Shipmans and the Ian Brady's of the world. But it's really interesting when you start unpicking their stories because only by unpicking the stories and putting yourself in their shoes can you then start to actually see yourself not as an equal to these people, but you sort of then end up going and go, oh God, I can see how actually that happened. For Marion Partington, whose sister, she's one of the stories, her sister was killed by Fred and Rosemary West, the serial killers. And for her, she's been on a a, a journey, a, a process of forgiveness for many years. For her, seeing Rosemary West in prison and hearing how she had been so thoroughly brutalised as a child and as a teenager was really key to her understanding. 
to hear of her brutalization and that obviously she had turned into a brutal person capable of utter brutality. And it made sense to Marion and it really, really helped her in the same way that you're describing. Mm. Did she hear it from Rosemary herself? Yeah, in the trial. Yeah. Wow. And did she go down the path of forgiveness? Yes, she's written an amazing book called If You Sit Very Still, all about what happened to her sister, but also about forgiveness and what it means to her and how she's got there and when it works, when it doesn't. Again, she's 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 probably, I would think, she's like one of the deepest thinkers and the best writers. If anyone wants to learn about forgiveness, to read her book. Mm. Oh, and my book. <laughs> <laughs> of course, and talking about your two books, um, can you... Give me the titles of them both. Yes. I have read them both and I would put a caveat a warning on the first one, which is it is totally fascinating and unbelievably powerful, but it's quite yeah. hard. Yeah, the first Not book, to say that you shouldn't buy it and read it, but it's... No, when you can dip in and out It's as not well. a holiday read. <laughs> <laughs> so the first one is called The Forgiveness Project, Stories for a Vengeful Age. And after an introductory essay by me, I found like, in 30 pages, I'd said everything I wanted to say, actually, about my own feelings about forgiveness, what it means, what it doesn't, etc. Then I just share some of the stories that have had the most impact. The other book that came out last year is called Forgiveness is Really Strange, and I've written it with a psychologist called Dr. Massey Noor from Keele University, and it's an illustrated graphic book, very short, and it's looking at the psychology behind forgiveness. Also, I think it's very good for young people. It's good for people who don't read very much because I'm a journalist in background. I love words. And therefore, the Forgiveness Project inevitably started out as quite word-heavy, text-heavy, mm. story-led in that respect. And so we're trying... It's a, it's a different reach, and that's Well, there's great. some beautiful illustrations in it And as beautiful well. illustrations. Like pictures have been yeah, done. By an artist called really Sophie well. Standing. Yeah, brilliant. So could you give us a couple of examples of stories where someone has forgiven and maybe a couple of examples of where someone hasn't? There was one woman called Wilma Dirksen whose prepubescent daughter disappears, doesn't come home, you know, every mother's worst nightmare. And a few days later, she's discovered murdered. And Wilma, it always interests me because what happened to her, along with this trauma and friends coming around bringing food and support... One night, a man stands at her door and he's the father of a murdered child. And he, they bring it, they invite him in and he just tells them everything he's lost. He's lost his job, his relationship, his health, his equilibrium, his happiness, his hope for the future. Everything he's lost. And he leaves. She says goodbye to him. You know, she's in trauma herself. And her and her husband go to bed that night. This is like two weeks after her daughter's been murdered. And they decide we have to do something differently. We have to go on a journey of forgiveness. We have to find something in us to forgive. And she became known as, you know, Mrs. Forgiveness. She talked about it publicly. And a lot of people didn't like it and didn't understand it. She was got a lot of abuse, even though she, these were parents in trauma. And she is a really interesting woman about forgiveness. She's hung on to it and she's explored it and she's grappled with it. And at times she's found it really difficult because there's been all sorts of difficult things about the case in that it took a long time to find the perpetrator. He was convicted and then he was released because there was a second trial. So she has been up and down and round with this. And yet forgiveness has been her rock. It has kept her going, kept her alive. There's no question. 
And I suppose then her sort of forgiveness might have had to have been twofold. I mean, one against the perpetrator of the crime and then maybe against the justice system itself. Yes, all that. Absolutely. And against friends who, you know, said some terrible things. But I, I was I'm interested by that because her determination was literally to save herself because she saw what trauma can do, what grief can do, what utter suffering and the loss of a child can do. And she just had to do something differently. And that was the only way she could do. We also shared stories of former perpetrators, former offenders, former terrorists, if you like, because I think it's really important to hear their stories. Because if you understand why people are led towards harming others and causing damage, then it's easier to sort of prevent it in the future. And also they're incredible role models to those that are thinking of going the same way. Arno Michaelis is an American former white supremacist who was responsible for a lot of violence. Big guy, tattooed, had a really successful record label, CDs in those times, full of hate, hate lyrics. And he was involved in a lot, a lot of bad stuff. And the thing that changed him, I always find kind of very moving when I've heard him talk about it, that one day he goes into McDonald's and orders something and he's got you know, the Nazi swastika sign tattooed across his knuckles. And the black woman behind who's serving him, she looks at him, she sees it because he's really shoving his hands in her face because he wants her to see them. And she says, she looks at him with compassion and she says, you know, you're worth more than that. And he's so disarmed by this response that he apparently flees from McDonald's never to go in there again. But that set something off in his mind. He thought, how can she not hate me? He's also had a child at the same time. He's just had a young child. And he thinks to himself, I don't want her to grow up like me. And this is the beginning of a change. These take a long time. And then finally, the thing that really did it was when in a neighbouring state, there was an attack at a Sikh temple by supremacists and several people are killed. And he reaches out to the son of one of the victims because he knows he could have done that. You know, he was just short of doing an act like that. And the two of them now work together and they go to schools. And, it's, you know, it's, a, again, a restorative pairing. It's really important for people to see them talking together. And he started an organisation called Life After Hate. And his story is very, very powerful because we know lots of people don't move in his direction towards compassion and empathy and forgiveness. And he says forgiveness is a sublime value, he says. The unconditional forgiveness of people I once hated was what got me from A to B, from there to here. So his story is very powerful. Do you have any stories of where maybe someone hit a dead end, not to be sort of negative, but mm. I think it's always important to sort of put the other side of yeah, the yeah, yeah. story across. It doesn't all end up in, yes, I renounced all my hatred and, you know, I've moved on. And do you have an example that you give us maybe of someone who just couldn't quite get there and that's okay too? Well, there are several stories where people don't forgive, but I wouldn't say that they're stuck in a dead end wouldn't put it like that. There's Rami Alahan, who's an Israeli father, whose teenage daughter was killed in a suicide bomb. And he says, I do not forgive and I do not forget, but the suicide bomber was a victim like my daughter, grown bitter from poverty, exclusion and fear. Um, so that's where the understanding comes in. And the, he then joined Parent Circle, 
which is a fantastic organisation which brings bereaved parents and relatives together from both sides, from Palestine and Israeli sides. And that's his life's work. And it, it, it allowed him to get up again in the morning when he joined that organisation and when he realised that he wasn't going to hate and be completely broken by it. And there are others who have despised the word forgiveness and have come through that because what they have despised about it is the fact that people have told them that they must and that if they don't, this is what will happen to them. And actually they've come to, to for whatever reason, they've, they've found it to be a much more fluid, much more flexible emotion, value, whatever you call it, quality. It's hard to know exactly what it is even. Mm. <laughs> it's a verb though, I'm convinced of that. A verb rather than a noun because it's not fixed. Yeah. So restorative justice, we know in this country, it's held in high regard by victims. It's something like over 96% of victims feel that it's uh, an important, positive process to go through. Why is it? Throughout the years, there's been much discussion about the fact that therefore that this would be a good thing to have woven into the fabric of our prison system. Why do you think it just hasn't happened well, I think a lot of it is down to resources. I mean, there was a huge training up of prison officers to run restorative justice conferences, meetings in prisons. But that was just an extra thing they were going to do along with their jobs. And we all hear about how what an incredibly stressful, difficult job it is. I think even though it's more out there in the public domain, people understand a bit more about what it is. There's just a not, it's not reaching victims because it has to be victim-led, really, um, and I think it'd be most powerful if it is victim-led because sometimes to be approached by an offender if you're a victim, it, again, it puts the power back into the offenders and there's all sorts of suspicions which are almost entirely unfounded, I think, that, that but somehow by having restorative justice going to lighten their sentence. So it's very well evidenced, as you said, not only victim satisfaction but in... Reducing reoffending. It's probably the best evidenced and most successful intervention there is. I completely agree with you. It's an absolute mystery why more resources and um, more emphasis isn't put on restorative justice. It should be everywhere. It should be in every school. It should be in every prison. There should be a special officer. Yeah. But it's timely and it's costly. I agree and I sort of see why lots of things that we know work don't get rolled out and the cost argument yeah. is used over and over again but of course there's always money found to build bigger prisons there's always money found for this that and the other but it seems like there's never any money found for the stuff that we know works yet we just keep repeating the things that don't work. Yes, that's a system thing isn't it it's it's really is it's still again a bit like forgiveness restorative justice involves compassion and empathy and understanding and, and we prefer revenge yeah we do and it's just what we're more used to and so culturally yeah, i guess yeah and it's always going to be something that's on the fringes although they have tried to make it policy probably more than in any other country here well i think it, it only takes one mp doesn't it to sort of say oh you're being soft and of course the tabloid press um so there's a lot to work against but so it's both things, I would say, but obviously money has got something to do with it, but it's more than money, you're absolutely right. And you wouldn't say it's a soft option, would you? Not at all, it's the hardest option, because to actually sit in a room with someone that you've hurt profoundly and committed a crime against takes a lot. And you will only sit in that room, this is why it takes time, because there's a lot of preparation needed. That person has to be completely genuine. Mm. And you have to know that. Yeah, and I get 
absolutely enraged when people say that restorative justice is the soft option oh, because actually oh. what it displays is a colossal lack of understanding of the subject matter mm. and that really bothers me when it's mm. people in yeah. power saying so, things like that and that goes back to your question as to why it isn't more widely rolled out so where would you like to see the forgiveness project in the next 10 20 years we have a far reach but we're still quite small we operate out of london what I love is for sort of chapters to grow up. We have a presence in America and in Germany and France, we have an exhibition that gets used at different venues and institutions. But I love people to sort of grow their own little chapters and do their own things and use the work that we've done. And that, that could easily happen and is happening in a small way. You know, but it takes people who feel as passionate and strong about this as we do a small group at the moment, just like three or four of us. So it's, you know, it's it's not an easy charity to keep alive and kicking because it's about changing minds and hearts and behaviour. And, you know, outcomes tend to be soft outcomes. But nevertheless, we have some very good evidence that being exposed to these stories really can help people deal with their own unresolved grievances and grudges and help build reconciliation so I'm absolutely convinced in the power of it. In terms of spreading forgiveness or getting forgiveness into any policies, I think it can become dangerous in a way if forgiveness is pushed too strongly because people have used it, for instance, in Burundi, sort of forgiveness. And, and to a certain extent in Rwanda, forgiveness can be used to avoid accountability, you know, just to sort of brush aside the wounds and the harm of the past. So I think it's a very personal thing and it has to be a choice. So before I say goodbye to you, Marina, I would just like to tell our listeners that you have a great website, which is www.theforgivenessproject.com. So I would urge everyone listening to go and have a look at the stories on the website because they are so unbelievably powerful. You mentioned your two books, Stories for a Vengeful Age and Forgiveness is really strange. Um, you also have an annual lecture and the Restore programs work in the prisons. You have a speaker's bureau as well. So yes, I urge everybody listening to get stuck in and to learn a bit more about forgiveness and how it all works. And, and you're truly incredible and inspiringly brilliant, fantastic <laughs> charity, which you know thank I love. You. So thank much. you so much for coming along and chatting. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Justice. If you found it interesting, you can discover more about the work we do within the justice system by visiting our website, onesmallthing.org.uk. One Small Thing is a charitable organisation striving for positive change in the justice system. If you would like to subscribe to Justice, you can do so via your usual podcast platform. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.